Good afternoon, Sir Hefla. Good afternoon, Nancy Rommelman. You look fetching today. I thank you so much I, I, as, as we got here. Because, you know, uh, hi, listeners. Um, we, Sarah and I can always see each other, though. We just record, uh, just give you guys the audio. Though, you know, we have been kicking around the idea of doing a... Um, of doing kind of a live chat, which would be video with people. I don't know. Yeah, we should do that. Although, if if we do anything where we uh, videotape the um, our our podcast, the people will see that I when I'm talking, I close my eyes like half the time. You have to look at this. Well, my eyes are so big that maybe it can like make up. It'll be like two sets of eyes. I do this thing where I'm, I close my eyes so I can yes. concentrate, so I don't get distracted by Nan the brilliance of Nancy's oh. beauty. It's so distracting. It's like the sun. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. And also, I mean, maybe we should wait till, hold on, drum roll, please, until there's something new to look at when it comes to Sarah Hepla. Oh, my God. Do we God. have an announcement? Do we have an announcement? Oh, my announcement? God. <laughs> Somebody shot their mouth off last time during the last episode. Was what was me? I thinking? I just got really carried away about Marilyn's hair. And I was like, if five people subscribe or paid subscribers, I will do my hair like Marilyn's. And guess what, and what happened? We got more than five. <laughs> oh, my God. You know, it's so funny. I think I did this. Ah, I was thinking about it. Why did I do this? I think this is a little bit of like what I do in like I think I secretly might have been curious about what this looked like and wanted an excuse to do it. You're platinum curious. I am platinum curious. Mm -hmm. Well, so what I'm saying is that first of all, congratulations. Thank you so much, everyone, for the support. We super appreciate it. And part of that money is going to go to Sarah Hepla to go get like a super nice dye job. Not like some crappy, don't do it yourself. We want you to like do it pro. And I don't know. I think you should also get some of that styling if you can. I texted I, I texted my um stylist, my wonderful stylist named Rio after the Duran Duran song. And oh, I said, "What would you say if I told you that I lost a bet and I need to dye my hair platinum blonde like Marilyn?" And she said, "The first thing I would say is hell to the no." <laughs> and the second thing I would say is, if you're determined to do this, let's set you up with the right colorist. It's not my area of expertise, but we'll get you the right conditioners. And I I am more invested in this than you at this point. <laughs> well, I'm excited about it. And I think we set a tentative date. This is pre-Maryland uh, of something like October 19th. So I don't know, that that's not that long. Anyway, we'll wait till it's done so that you can have the full radiance of um, La Hepala. Although I have uh, a problem. My, my high school reunion is coming up. Okay, so you don't want to be platinum. Or you I mean, do. that is a you bold do. thing to do, to go what? to my... Sarah, have I told the story of the soap? Use no. the good... You, okay, so here's the deal. Number of years ago... This fabulous couple gave me like this fancy soap in a box, you know, like one of those things you see, probably like a $50 bar of soap or something. And I took it and I proceeded to stick it in the closet that I go into every day. You know, this is years ago uh, when we lived in LA and you know where the towels and the toiletries and everything were. And about two years later, I'm like, Nancy, why aren't you using that soap? Use the good soap now. Okay. Sarah, Okay. Take the opportunity. <laughs> take the opportunity to ah! go into your high school reunion. People going, holy <laughs> mackerel! Very what? bold thing. Why is Sarah Heppel looking? 
showing up looking yeah, like look, a lady of the night. Listen, you just tell them. You say, listen, my fans, my fans made me oh do it. Oh, my goodness. Right. Okay, so we're doing that thing that some people love and some people hate. We're just blabbing before we we tell people the, the meat of the matter. But I'm also going to tell you before we start on the meat of the matter that this is going to be my most scattered episode because oh good i'm okay, gonna be scattered great. too great great it'll just be like a bunch of popcorn popping but um this house this is literally it's nancy's airbnb there have been guests here for more than a month and it's just it's actually fantastic it's just like super interesting people but there's like constantly stuff going on here and i'm trying to work and i'm trying to hit deadlines and i'm getting super mad about a story that happened in portland last night i'm just so I'm a little breathless, but that's okay. So, hey, we had a really cool open thread this week that I wondered if it was time it, it would be worth just chatting about a little bit. We asked people what book changed their life, and we had a really interesting, you know, lots of of feedback on that. Um, lots of interesting books. One thing I wondered about is, you know, I thought maybe we could talk a little bit about the choices we made. Sure. Um, I'll start. I can do that. So it was, um, I worked up all through my pregnancy. I worked uh, catering and also uh, reading scripts. I was very, very busy. And I decided the last two weeks before I delivered, I was not going to work. I was just going to stay off my feet. And I wound up um, just being like super quiet in the house. And I read five books. And one of the books I read was Mary Gateskill's Bad Behavior. And it's a series of short stories, sort of kind of like a little bit sexy, a little bit raw, but that's not what it was. It wasn't the topic at all. It was the way she wrote, which was so, I mean, it's beautiful writing, but it was so direct and and also so kind of exposing but also not like one that the kind of journalism I kind of love or the kind of writing storytelling I kind of love, which is it's very direct, but it's also as, as an editor of mine used to say it, the story's all in the air between the lines. In any mm. case, I read this book and I, I said to myself, wait, you're allowed to write this way, which sounds completely idiotic, but it was that seismic. And you also have to realize I was then sort of, I, I, I'd always been writing. Everybody always tells me I was writing as a kid. I don't really remember. I didn't know I was going to be a writer as my living, but I was starting to. I was starting to tiptoe in the waters. I was reading scripts. I was writing a play. I was doing video treatments for people. And all of a sudden, I was like, wait a second. You can write however you want. She gave me permission, which sounds crazy. And, you know, I've since met her. I met her last year. I wound up dancing at a party with her, which is very oh, yeah. cool, at Nick Flynn's house uh, up in upstate New York. Um but I, I found her to be so a weird combination of crazily brave and crazily fragile. And mm. I just, um, that was it. I never, I never did anything else. I've never had another job since then. I've never not, I've only been a writer since then. I mean, I did I'm, a few more catering jobs because I had the gig and I needed money, but that's it. That was it. It was the turning point. I've always imagined her as kind of small and bird boned. Is that correct? She's not. She's about she's about my size. So oh. she's maybe like five seven. I'm five eight. She maybe she's shades thinner than me. She was a fantastic dancer. She used to be a stripper. So oh, she right. was, she was dancing with Stephen Elliott at this party, and man, uh, and she's she's older than me. She's in her 
60s and Stephen is, I guess, about 50. And they and Stephen used to be a stripper too. You may know Stephen's work. He's he's a writer as well. We'll put some links to his work here. I mean, the party stopped watching them. It was, I mean, we stopped. Not we didn't stop watching them. We stopped to watch them. And then I just horned in and did a little dancing with them too. So, um, yeah. Uh, and, and Bad Behavior is a book that I haven't read entirely, but I've read a few stories out of that. One of the most famous is, would be the one that became the movie Secretary. Right. With Maggie Gyllenhaal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Gates Gill has written, um, is, is sort of known for the way she writes about sex and, and women's complicated relationships to sex. And also just women's complicated relationships to each other. She wrote a book, one of the spookiest novels I've read called Veronica. Mm. That's just, here's the thing. You can't, here's the thing about Mary Gateskill, at least in, and, and I, I would, oh my God, I would love it so much if, if when I'm, I'm about to say, I don't, I've never read anybody that writes like her, who thinks like her, who's got this sort of, like this mixture of like prickliness, but vulnerable at the same time. If our listeners can tell me like, Nancy, if you like Mary Gateskill, you'll love, you know, such and such. Let me know. I absolutely adore fiction that is just like a little tiny bit spooky, like you can't quite get a handle on what's going on. And I've got a bunch of others. I'll make a Joyce list. Joyce Carol Oates is like that sometimes. You know, I've never really read her. I think I've read a few things, but I don't think I've ever tackled a novel. An, I was an really novel. into her. And I'll tell you the book that I just loved was Black Water, which is a book uh, that I think you would like a lot. It's based on Ted Kennedy's um, oh, following the Chappaquiddick oh, incident, boy. and it's it's narrated by the woman. Now they have different names. Mary for B- Mary Joe jo- Pernick. Yeah, yeah. Um, she has a different name in this, but it's narrated by the woman that meets him at a party and then is driven off the bridge and then left in the car as it's drowning. So oh, it's so basically horrible. narrated so by somebody who is drowning, and it's a it's oh it's, god. I believe. I, I seem to remember it's like a real time novel, you know, like it's like 90 minutes. It's like 90 minutes that she's alive. I, I don't know. That thing blew my mind when I read it when okay. I was like 20 okay. and 22 uh, or three or something like that. Um, and it's slim. Uh, okay. I, yeah. I will. Um, I've got a, I've got a couple I mean, of Joyce others. Carol Oates is like one of the most prolific writers of our I time. Know. That woman just, and, and she's on Twitter and I know yeah. she's like Kat Rosenfield. I know, right? It's I, right? It's not fair. I judge myself against Pat Rosenfeld it's all not the time. Fair. And I, I really some- need like a personal intervention where I'm like, <laughs> I am not good enough. No, I know. I'm I not worthy. I'm not. I know. So I, 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 I love Kat and she is a friend and we actually threw her last book party here at Paloma. It was kind of fun because we left the, uh, we've got a Paloma Media YouTube and we left the the monitor on the whole time. So people just like came in and sat like Jesse uh, Single and Kat and all these other people at the party just like sat here and like talked to whoever was watching, which was pretty fun. But anyway, she's got yet another book coming out. She writes like two pieces a week for Unheard. She's on Twitter. She's hilarious. She's gorgeous. She teaches five classes, yoga classes a week. So Kat, we love you, but stop it. Come on. You're making the rest of us feel bad. And I need more people on Twitter acknowledging how little they have accomplished that today. That's what I, I mean. Or just more people on Twitter telling us how wonderful we are. Really, that's mm. that's why we're here. So, um, okay, oh, on to uh, your yeah. book. Yep. Yeah, well, my book was Different Seasons by Stephen King, which was a book that I read when I was 12 years old. You know, because I became a writer, I think one of the, the, the 
false assumptions about me is that from the time I was little, I was just must have been a voracious reader. I was a reader, but I actually was like a really picky one. And my, my brother was the speed reader that would read ed- anything. And I and, and my mom used to have to like pay me to read. She wanted so badly to make me a reader that she would actually bribe me. Um, but around that time, I fu- there were two writers that that punched through this this kind of thing I had where I, 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 I just would get easily bored by a book. The first was Judy Bloom, uh, mm-hmm. who I just absolutely loved. And then the second was Stephen King, who I found when I was about 11 years old. And I think the first book I read was Night Shift, which is a collection of the short stories. And I started reading them and I read different seasons and it had a, a story in there called The Body, which was later made into the movie Stand By Me. Um, it was about young boys that were 13, you know, the other, I don't know why I was like so obsessed with this, I guess maybe because I was around that age and I identified so strongly with them. I think this probably speaks to like, there weren't a lot of books about young girls that I identified with at the time. The Judy Bloom books I did, but I remember my mom, you know, uh, reading Little Women to me, and I was like, "Oh my god, this book is killing me!" Like I just could not. <laughs> please stop, mom. I just, I, stop. I just, I just. She was like, "I love." It was like her favorite, like one of her Aww. favorite books. I was like, "God, oh my god, the pianoforte and the needlepoint and the, you know, I just." Ugh. <laughs> but the the thirteen year old boys, you know, they were like, they were they like were doing things. They were doing things, yeah. right? Yeah, I yeah, mean, yeah, this yeah, is yeah. like my early longing to be kind of like have the bo- the adventures yeah. of boys you know they were like sneaking off into the woods and they were stealing beer and they were doing things that I was doing because I was this precocious <laughs> young thing and the main character of different seasons is uh, a boy kind of based on Stephen King as a younger boy his name is Gordy Lachance in the in the in the novella and he's a storyteller. And this was one thing about me, you know, that I was this storyteller. I, I I could write really well and I was a storyteller. I wasn't always a great reader, weirdly enough. But I was this, I was somebody that everybody turned to, to tell stories to. And I think it was, it was one of these moments where you just identify like, oh, that's who I am. That's, that's but, me. But how did it, because you put in the thread that that kind of made you become a writer. What what was what was the impetus there, right? I mean, you read it and you said, okay, these boys are me, but then what made you say, and, and I'm going to... The main character was a writer and he oh, had the, become... Oh, oh, sorry, sorry. Yeah, right. the main okay. character okay. was it, a young it. boy who's based on Stephen King. So he's a he's a, you know, he tells stories to everybody. And then he becomes a writer. Right, right, And right. I just remember thinking like, I want to do this. I want to connect to people like this. Um, the first line of that book was something that I carried around, or not the book, but the novella. Um, I carried it around in my purse for a really Aww. long time. It was um, no, that the makes most sense, Im- though. the it most important sense. things are the hardest things to say. They're the things we get ashamed of because words diminish them. Say that and again, one more time. The most important things are the hardest things to say. They're the things we get ashamed of because words diminish them. And it goes on to say, like, words shrink things that were so big in our minds. I I used to be able to quote the whole thing. I can't now. But I remember struggling with that so much. I was a very shy child. And when I would try to say things that mattered to me, they would feel so reduced and I didn't understand. And I understood writing as sort of the place where you could explore those ideas and Mm. give them the full weight of their experience. And get them right. It's sort of like when people say, you know, words don't cover it, which people say a lot. and, And certainly in moments of extreme grief or elation or whatever. It's like, I don't have the words for this thing. Like, I don't have the words for how much I love you. I don't have the words for how sad I am or whatever. But when you are a writer, you can sit there and try to do it. 
you can try. So, so that's um, where it started for me. Okay. I, I was interested that we had a lot of, and I, I, I guess it's because someone uh, mentioned it. They said their favorite book was Clan of the Cave Bear. And I was amazed how many people are like, oh my God, I love that book so much because you think of it as sort of like almost like a, like a pulp paperback in a sense. But people were very, very moved by that book. I don't, I think I knew it was a book, but I really only remember it because it was this kind of dirty movie. I think it had nudity. Might have been like an, like an, it, it might have been rated X or something like that. And it was like starring, uh, what's her name? Dan, of, Daryl she, Hannah? Maybe, or Cheech and Chong's daughter? <laughs> Cheech and Chong's <laughs> Clan of the Cave Bear. <laughs> It's a mashup. Um, <laughs> um, you can look that up. Um, I actually wound up on, right when I moved to Portland, for some reason, don't ask me how, but I the book on tape of that wound up in my car and I listened to it. It was actually super compelling. Ayla, I remember the woman's voice. I, I liked it. I, I, I've never read it, but I, I like listening to it. Well, Daryl Hannah was in that movie. I, okay. I thought- I don't know who you've got going on. As some other movie where there were cave people. I don't know. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. Um, Sarah, what's the name of this podcast? Last time I checked, this podcast was called Smoke Em If You Got Em. It was. Guys, thank you for joining us again today. Um, we do have some things in the news that we kind of wanted to talk about. Also some book stuff. Um, where do you want to start? Do you want to start with the crisis of masculinity? Yeah. Because I, I, uh, I actually was up at four o'clock in the morning reading some tangential, tangential stuff. But since you um, actually uh, have have doved, divin, dived into yeah, I the book, yeah, div- divivin, you div- pronounced <laughs> divivin. <laughs> Sorry, you know, I have a problem. I told you it's going to no, be scattered. This, this was as advertised. As advertised. So, so yeah, let's uh, tee that up for us, Sarah. Yeah, sure. So I read a book uh, by Richard Reeves, which was called Of Boys and Men, Why the Modern Man is Struggling, Why It Matters, and What to Do About It. And this is a book that likely, if you swim in the waters of heterodoxy, um, which I suppose is where somewhere around the point where we we lie. Yeah. Um, you have probably heard about this book because this this author, who is a British-born scholar uh, who works at the Brookings Institute, he's been on the Coleman Hughes podcast. He's been on Andrew Sullivan. Uh, he's Nick also- Gillespie. Nick, Nick Gillespie, Gillespie for reason. Just yep. To- he's also been, um, this book was the subject of uh, opinion columns by both David Brooks and Michelle Goldberg. Uh, and I just saw the Connor Friedersdorf, who we love. Uh, Connor yes. Friedersdorf yes. at The Atlantic just wrote about it. So well, this there we go. is the book to discuss. So I hope that this won't be too redundant for people that have already heard him. I will say I've listened and read a lot of those things and I still get something out of this when I, some of the statistics, it's like hard to take in. And, and so, so each time I, I get a little bit more about it, but, um, you know, so, so let me tell you a little bit about this book. You know, well, first of all, Reeves has three sons, which is part of his interest in this. And to let you know, his, um, his sort of partisan leaning, you know, he calls himself a conscientious objector in the culture wars, mm-hmm. which I like. I think I'd mm-hmm. like to be a conscientious objector mm-hmm. in the culture wars. Um, mm-hmm. But he's looking at the problem of men and boys who seem rudderless in school and society, and they're not thriving in schools or on the job market. And he wanted to know 
why and also like he gives some proposals about what we might do to bring men up one of the things that he that he makes a point um to to point out again and again is that you know if if the initial objection to this which i've seen in the comment section many times of these pieces is oh give me a break give me a break men don't need any help like women are the one you know like uh i'm so tired of this whatever if if that's if that's your opinion um, you know, he, he makes the point of saying, you know, the problem here is, is I'm not trying to say that feminism went too far. This is not any kind of pushback against feminism. His argument is that it hasn't gone far enough. It's recast women's lives, but we haven't recast men's. They, they are at a little bit of a loss for what their role might be and that this shouldn't be a zero sum game. So, so, you know, we can continue to push for more opportunity and also address what's going on with with boys and men. So um, let me quote uh, from the beginning of the book. Boys are falling behind at school and college because the educational system is structured in ways that put them at a disadvantage. Men are struggling in the labor market because of an economic shift away from traditionally male jobs. And fathers are dislocated because the cultural role of family provider has been hollowed out. The male malaise is not the result of a mass psychological breakdown, but of deep structural challenges. Um, so let me let me just pause there before I get into sort of the stats about this. Um, Nancy, is this a book that you were interested in or is this a topic that you were interested in? Well, it is, but I, I kind of... Um coupled onto it with a different book that I'm going to talk about um, when, when after you've spoken here called um, Men Without Work, which is a short book that was written by uh, Nicholas Eberstadt of the American Enterprise Institute. He wrote it in 2016, and then he updated it in 2022 post-pandemic with ah. some really really startling and shocking numbers. He he's a I, I can't remember his exact title. He's a he's a numbers guy. And so there's a ton of data in it. And it is it's shocking. And um it's very, very much connected to what you're talking to, but it goes at it from a bit of a more statistical uh uh position and then kind of how we got here, maybe not as much. I don't think probably as Reeves does, but also what what are going to be the long term ramifications? So um, I'm going to let you I'm going to let you speak for a while, and then I'll, sure. I'll, then I'll get onto that. Sure, yeah. So I mean, so the idea of of men in crisis or masculinity in crisis is not something that's that's new, right? I mean, we're talking about it like. Like, you know, it's everywhere right now, but this has been going on for a long time. I mean, this book quotes Margaret Mead talking about this back in the 70s. And there are other books that we've seen over the years. One was The End of Men by Hannah Rosen, I think about seven years ago. Yeah. Kathy Young wrote The War on Boys around 2000, I think. Um, and then Susan Faludi, who is um, probably, she's best known for writing Backlash, which is about... Um, feminism. Uh, but, you know, her next book after Backlash was a book called Stiffed in 1999, which was called, the, which was about the betrayal of the American male. And, you know, this is something she identified back then. She wrote, the more I consider what men have lost, a useful role in public life, a way of earning a decent and reliable living, appreciation in the home, 
respectful treatment in the culture, the more it seems that men of the late 20th century are falling into a status oddly similar to that of women at mid-century. And I'll just add one thing here. You know, we women at mid-century just came roaring through and have made unbelievable gains and are incredibly supported in the public sphere as as they should be. And it's very interesting that you said you don't think it should be a zero-sum game. I said the exact same thing this morning to Matt Welch. I it, I was actually reading his copy of, uh, of uh, Men Without Work, and he had to grab it today because he needed to write something about it. Um, and I said, you know, it doesn't need to be a zero-sum game. If we've got all kinds of different people, including, a, you know, women now in the workforce, we should be creating other opportunities as opposed to shedding men. But but what I wanted to say here is that when there is a crisis of, of women, when we feel that they are not, you know, getting their due or there's not enough opportunity, it's a big deal. And we talk about it and it is political. People do not really talk about the fact that there are one in six men in this country who are not just unemployed. They're not looking for work. Mm-hmm. They have literally, they have literally bowed out of, of, of being part of a of the productive society. One of the things that Reeves points out is that when we think about the career ladder, we tend to focus, we tend to look up. In other words, we look at the top 10%, which is often dominated by men, but we don't look down to notice that the the lower rungs are completely occupied by men as well. They are at the top and the bottom. There's also the case that there are as we know, there is such a deficit of employees right now. You can walk down the street and you can get a job, you know, anywhere you want, basically. They are so looking for for workers. And they said that even if all of the men that are not looking for work, they're, they're, they call them NILFs, uh, not... I'm sorry, MILFs? That's something no, very different. No, no, I know. It's terrible. It is a terrible... Uh, uh, it's NILF stands for not... Oh, God, I can't believe I can't remember this. Not... I'd something like in to. the labor in the labor force. Um, if you if you gave all those men jobs, if there's like 10 million of these men that are that are not even looking for work, they've completely dropped out. We would still need more workers. So there is there are a lot of people not working, men not working because they just have as as he talks about, just sort of leading lives of quiet despair. Mm. In many anyway, go ahead. I will get to that, and I will look up. Why I can't believe I forgot what NILF means. <laughs> What it stands for. I, I don't know that it's going to be NILFs. It is. It's NILF. It's NILF. It's okay. It's not something in the labor force. I'm going to look it up right now. Okay. Well, um, we've created a society of NILFs and MILFs. Congratulations yeah, I know. to us. I know. Um, so let me, you know, there are a lot of places where men have fallen behind. One of the, the really, um, Noteworthy places is in schools and in colleges. So uh, just a few stats. For every 100 bachelor degrees given to women, 74 are awarded to men. And the gender gap in college is actually wider than it was in 1970, which is before things like Title IX are passed. But it's in the opposite direction. Um, And so this is something that nobody predicted uh, this is something that happened fairly quickly. And so a lot of this book is devoted to looking at why this might have happened and and what to do about it. One of the things that he looks at is secondary and primary education. Um, 
And this is a place where before they even get to college, boys are falling behind girls. Um, Two thirds of the students in the top 10 percent of the class are girls and roughly two thirds of the students at the lowest end are boys. And one of the things that he points to here is that boys brains develop more slowly. And the parts of the brain that handle impulse control and planning and future orientation, it matures in in boys about two years later. Um, And this is something we hear a lot about boys. I mean, this is one of the reasons why when I was... You know, like like so many girls my age, I was in, you know I was I was dating and interested in older boys because they were the ones that that seemed like I could talk to them. Um, but this is this is not just uh, like this is actually manifesting in things like they they they're having trouble with reading and verbal development. Um, so his idea is he wants to start them in, in school a year later. And I, and I think that might be a little bit of, well, let's try to reverse engineer the problem. Right. I think we're seeing these things and we're trying to find, and I think this is a creative way, but I'm, you know, I'm also maybe pushed back on it a little. I mean, I, I've been a child in class with boys who were... (laughs) quite capable. I've had a child in class with boys. Some boys were mature, some were not. You know, it, it, do, do we start making policy because later on we're seeing these weird things that may have something to do with the development, but you know, maybe not. You know, boys have developed, been, girls and boys have been in school for a long, long time together. And now is why we're seeing the problem and going to maybe go back and change it. So I'm, I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm not saying it's a terrible idea at all, but it, it might be other factors that are creating these later deficits and issues more than the fact that their brains develop a year slower than girls do. Well, one of the things he points to is that we need more male teachers and that there are just too many female teachers. And, you know, this is something, you know, I, you know, I briefly taught high school. Do you know that? I did not know that. You didn't know that? No, I, Sarah. Yes, we're still learning about each other. We're still in the courtship phase, Still in the courtship phase. There's (laughs) stories I've never told you. My first job out of college was teaching high school English. And, you know, I only stayed in it a year. Um, cause then I got a job at the, the Austin news weekly and I just, Oh my gosh, I was just too young. Um, I was 23 yeah. years old and I was teaching 14 and 15 year olds and the 15 year olds that were like taller than me and I had no classroom authority and it was just a mess. Um, I've always wanted to go back to teaching though. I really do think I have it in me, but I will tell you one thing I noticed when I was there, you know, those kids called me miss and, and I would say, you know, my name is miss Heppola and they'd be like, "Ugh, it's too hard. But then, (laughs) but they, but they call all their teachers miss. And one of the reasons they do that is that for them, there is just this smear of white women that teach you throughout your high school education. It's just one white woman after another. And they see them as slightly interchangeable. But isn't it also the case, sorry, in the South that you do you do say miss and ma'am and sir? I mean, that, I mean, uh, that's that my it was not. It was not. No, it was not. I have Southern friends and they're like, that's their, you know, yes, ma'am. Or like they, yeah, they, they, do they say would yes, introduce yeah, me that's to their, true. That's their nephew. True. And the, this is Miss Nancy. It was never this is Nancy. This is Miss Nancy. It's like, OK. You well, know? if you're a teacher, uh, maybe you can chime in on whether or not this propensity to call teachers just miss. 
is uh, a Southern thing. I feel like I've read it elsewhere um, that it's very common. And, and I got the sense from talking to them that they just had this sort of interchangeable sense of all these kind of, and we all sort of had the same like do gooder personalities and, you know, liked reading. I mean, it, I felt so interchangeable with these other students and it, it put me in a weird position. I wanted to believe that I had something to, to share with these kids, but I could see very clearly that they were hungering for experiences that I didn't necessarily have. Right. Um, that was, uh, and I'm not saying that, that white women cannot be good teachers. Of course they can be. And I was too young. And, um, but I'm just saying that, uh, that one of his suggestions is to is to you know give incentives for men in particular black men to come into teaching and the way that we've done in stem field you know we have realized that women need other female role models and we have started initiatives in order to get more women into stem we haven't done that in terms of teaching. Uh, what does STEM stand for again? Science, technology, E and math. <laughs> Electronics. <laughs> it's not, wasn't that funny. <laughs> Sometimes uh, Nancy is such an easy mark. It's so, I, I am. I, I, it's so this is delightful. Like it makes me feel about 15% funnier I, I, than I really am. I laugh at everyone's jokes. If you need a lift, just call me and start talking. I'll start laughing. I also laugh at television commercials, just in case that's of interest to anybody. Um, all right, keep going. Um, yeah, so, okay. Oh, the other reason this might be happening, I mean, he identified, there's definitely a thread running through here that there is like an aspiration gap. There is a sense that girls are far more driven um, right. And they, boys, men, boys will report that like, well, they're just so like, they're such go-getters. Yeah. This is, this is actually, I, if I, I wish he had more interviews with young men. Cause I really love hearing that. Um, of course, if you do want to hear that, there's another, uh, there's another good book called, uh, boys and sex by Peggy Orenstein. And um, what's the book by, um, Christina Hoff Summers? I thought that was like oh, the, is that war on boys? And I called it. I said Kathy it was by Young. Kathy Young. Uh, Kathy's a friend. I'll tell her that. I'm that, sorry, that we're Kathy and Christina Hoff Summers. I okay. I confused you two. I, I, okay, I thought so, but that's okay. Yeah, we got it right now. Um, so you know, this is uh one one younger man who's who's talking about the the fact that women uh, are doing so well in college, and he says, you know, the women are so driven. They know they have to provide for their family. They really don't need a relationship. They can do it on their own. When stuff gets hard. The guys tend to run away. The girls don't. Women tend to live in the future. Men tend to live in the present. So within that, you see that they have much more drive to get things done, have a family, um, be independent. They don't really feel like they need men to date, which I would actually, I think that's actually not true. I think a lot of women really do hunger for partners. Um, but there, we've we've talked about this in other episodes. You know that the hookup culture has kind of created some bad binaries there, where it's just sort of like you can either like a lot of women feel caught up in the um, in the casual sex uh, 
meat grinder, I guess, for lack of a better phrase. And, and, and they don't, you know, they end up kind of dismissing that. Whereas I actually think like connected, good relationships, they're just supportive or things that both sexes want, but whatever, there's, there's a perception that, you know, it's, it's the opposite of back when you would get your MRS degree, um, that a lot of women, particularly in college, don't want to be hamstrung by a relationship. They're very driven. And uh, I do think this is a, this is interesting and it speaks to that development of the brain, you know, that women tend to live in the future, men tend to live in the present. And so, so decisions are being made um, that, that, you know, that affect future outcomes. Well, so let me ask you a question. So if you were constantly or not constantly if whether it was insinuated or hammered at you that by men uh, let's say just because we're talking about men and women here if you were constantly say if if men were constantly saying like I don't need you I don't I don't need you I can do this by myself I can I can do everything by myself I don't need you you're I am strong I'm capable I'm smart I'm going to take every opportunity and I'm going to uh you know have this family and do it all I'm assuming that men somehow magically have these children if they want them um and I don't need you you're you are basically disposable so we're going to go back to the glorious dynam you know a, a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle well you know, we're talking now, women are like, I'm driven, I want to do this. I, there, it's an interesting quote, I want to provide for my family and I can. And that's true. Um, but how would you feel if you were being told that you weren't needed? And I think that is the crisis that we do have for men a lot of the time in the workforce um, right now, or they're being told this and they start to say, well, okay. You know, you're not, look, everybody wants to be appreciated. I don't care who you are. You want to be appreciated. You want to be, you want to be an important part of whatever dynamic you are, whether it's at work or to the family. Not everybody. Of course, there are exceptions. But for the most part, you do want to be appreciated and integral. And if all of a sudden now you're in a society where you really don't, you know, have a role, where you might even sort of been like, treated sort of with a contempt, with contempt, like your immutable characteristics, the fact that you're a man, and maybe we can extend that to say maybe you're a white man, you're just not really, you know, you're part of the problem. You're not part of the solution. We've got better solutions here. Well, I could see that people would want to escape. They would want to say like, I'm not, I'm not wanted here. And I'm going to escape into the into opiates. I'm going to escape into television. In this book, men that are not looking for work are watching on average 5.5 hours of television a day. Oh my that's, God. That's a lot of television, okay? The opiate crisis, as we know, is bad. They escape into gaming or into not real relationships online. And and as this author says, uh, Nicholas Ebers said, he's like, they are just leading, a lot of men are leading quiet, like they're courting deaths of despair. Yeah. We are talking one in, okay, let me just, if I may, for a second. In 1965, one in 22 American men were not working. Okay, that was like the average. I mean, people were like, in 2015, it's one in seven. Okay, that's that's startling. Okay, that's a lot of people. And these are people, again, that he's saying that are not, he draws a difference between the unemployed. The unemployed are people looking for work. 
okay? NILF is, stands for not in the labor force. These are people that are not looking for work. They have just dipped. They've dipped. It is white men. It is black men. It, more black men. There's more of a crisis in black men. You know who it's not? Immigrants. Mm. They come here and they work. Um, it, I got to say, it's pretty, it's, I'll tell a little, a quick, quick little story. My dad, when I was little, um, I guess yeah, I was about nine or 10. And um, he said to me, when, after you kids were born, I became invisible to your mother. I was just like, you know, the person that was the breadwinner, but I wasn't important anymore. I wasn't seen as, I wasn't appreciated. I wasn't valued. Well, that mar marriage fell apart, you know, mm. and he went elsewhere, but he was still, you know, he was a product of his generation and he still worked. And, but other people, there's just other things to do here in, in, in 2022 than there was in when my dad in 1975, like he didn't have the internet, you know, or whatever he did right. sports, but he, and he, he, you know, he kept, but he also kind of retired early and kind of did le live a life of quiet despair. Did you know that during the pandemic, middle-aged Women, for every 100 middle-aged women that died in the pandemic, 186 men. Oh wow! This oh wow! Is, That's almost double. Yeah, I think it's, it might be 176, but I think it's 186. Wow! These are, That's these, so interesting. These are people that don't want to be around, and maybe they don't want to be around because they're not only being told they're not valued. They're being told they're the problem. I mean, Sarah, well, we, well, we're, wait, we're living wait, through this. Wait, I mean, if they're dying from COVID, this is from from COVID causes. No, I know, but you're also you're weakened. I mean, someone that is doing oh, opiates and watching TV five hours okay, a day and I not see. working, you don't have a reason. You're you're just your 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 hold on life is going to be you know less. Well, that's I mean, it's it's a very interesting because I have a couple of thoughts. I mean, one is a media angle, which is that we heard repeatedly that. Um, Women lost so much job gains, mm -hmm. so many job gains during. True, because they were which home was to true, stay and it was Definitely. really it was devastating. Although I think a lot of those those losses have been regained, um, but I but I re repeatedly remember remember seeing headlines that were like the pandemic hit women worse, and it's interesting that it that that doesn't. But we don't talk about men. Those we didn't talk about who was dying. No. And the other thing that it makes me think about is how many of the stories were, were broken up along uh, racial lines, right? Like we were looking at, at, at how it was affecting... People of color, the black community, color, the native yeah. community. Yeah, yeah we, or, but there, but I don't remember seeing a lot of gender splits. We don't, I don't, I don't, I got it. But you, we, you said this at the opening, and you, you know, the idea of saying, oh, we don't want, who cares that boys are having a hard time? Screw it. First of all, they've had every opportunity to begin with. Problems in our society can be heaped on them because, you know, we have problems now and they were, you know, quote unquote in charge. We don't care. We need other people to make strides for. Well, you know, then these people are then going to back out of the room. I, I was something interesting. I listened to part of the um, Andrew Sullivan podcast with Reeves and he told a very interesting story. God, I'm, God you know, so everybody should know uh, I have what these days I have what was called my aperture is open. Everything is making me cry these days. So I'm not going to cry. Nancy's crying more. Yay. Know, She's evening the score. You've, you've pulled out ahead, I think. <laughs> I know I have. I'm way um, behind on crying episodes. Um, so, 
he said of his dad, his dad lost his job at one point. I guess this was like in the early 80s or something like that. And every day his dad got up in the morning and he shaved and he put on a tie. And his son said to him, like, why are you doing this? You're going to basically be sitting at the dining room table, you know, sending out resumes. He's like, because my job is to support you and to be the breadwinner here. And I have to, my job is to go get that job. And he needed to make himself to feel like that breadwinner. So he did everything he could to keep that up. Now, if you're watching television five and a half hours a day or using opiates, or this is another big thing that they talked about in this book it called the, the disability archipelago. People that just figure out ways to, oh, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you get disability or yeah. you get unemployment or, you know, this thing happened to my back. It's not really real. And talking about how every single person knows some in in certain communities knows someone who's doing that and if i don't right now know someone that's doing that that means someone else knows twice as many of those people that are you know just kind of trying to game the system so that they can you know i mean (laughs) i guess some people want to just stay home and watch tv and get free money but i gotta tell you this existentially especially for like traditionally you're going to be the breadwinner here this is this is despair. No, I think most people want purpose and usefulness and yes. that it disrupts. The, I mean, maybe our default easiest option is to sit around and do that because the television is there. The Internet is there. But I do think that most people want to feel that their life is meaningful. You know, I think one of the 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 gross overcorrections that I've seen is this idea of I don't need men, this this idea that women have. And I think it is it is a way of asserting their own independence. But I think it is not. I, I, I disagree with that idea. I think we all need each other. We all need men. We need women. We need men and women who are whole. And one of the things that this book repeatedly returns to is this idea that men like and and you hear a lot that women talk about like having to do so many things right that women are often like they they have to take care of the kids but they also have to keep a job and they have to be sexy and that you know it's this, yeah. it's this old yeah. idea that like we kept old roles and we added new ones and those have just been subtracted for men and so there is this sense like there's this um he quotes this moment in uh, actually Peggy Ornstein's book, Boys and Sex, where she asks a bunch of boys, what do you like about being a boy? And they all sit there blank. They don't know. And then one of them is like, gosh, I guess I'm just used to hearing what's wrong with boys. Oh, God, this is heartbreaking. So here's my question. Is it worth starting a kind of initiative that would be like the way that we have done this for girls like for the last i don't know 20 30 years there have been so many initiatives to to raise women up would this be helpful to men or is it just embarrassing to them so you see one of the things i think is a problem is that i think that succeeding at school and being invested in your education has been coded female for a lot of boys they don't think it's cool it's not just no. this brain development thing. It's that if you sit in the front row, if you do your homework, if you are talking to the teacher, that is seen as feminine. And that is terrible. That is terrible. 
Oh, it is. But I, I have to, I go back to, you know, when I went to school in grade school, there were plenty of boys that talked. No, I, mean, I, know, I, were, I you know. know. In my school, more of them did. Yeah. But I'm telling you, having spent time in the college classroom, this is something I saw repeatedly was that the girls were in the front row. The boys were in the back row, checked out. Every teacher I talked to told me this was really common. It's not that you don't have kids, boys that succeed. I'm just telling you that broadly speaking... This is okay. this is seen as like women are driven, you know, guys, I, I think they I think they're a little bit victim of this cool, a victim well, okay. of cool. But, the, but here's the thing, the, because I think traditionally and I think this goes for girls, too. And I know you and I have done it. It's like you don't want to show that you're vulnerable. You don't want to show that like, no, like, uh, OK, my leg is like hanging off here. I'm not going to say anything. I want to be I want to be tough. And I think that that's actually not a bad thing. I mean, we get stronger when we make ourselves get stronger. We don't ask for pity or do certain things. And I think boys are especially like that. Um, a couple of things. Number one, I think instead of starting an initiative where we are going to raise boys up, maybe we can just stop putting them down. I mean, that would be a start, Let's right? Let's start an initiative to stop putting boys down. Yeah. I mean, just don't do it. And, you know, I think it's, I think it is definitely a, a, a symptom of someone else's own insecurity that they have to say that someone else is the villain. I mean, people that are like, you know, uh, I, I have people in my life that are like this, you know, they can't, they can't appreciate anybody else's like success because then they think it makes them look bad. You know, it's like, oh, uh, I'm not going to name names, but one person I know had just done this like amazing thing. And this other girl's like, oh, I did that years ago. <laughs> okay. Like whatever, you know, stop it. That, that's, that's, that. And I think that actually speaks to, if we're talking about like women putting men down or whatever, it's like, it speaks to your own insecurity. What do you care? Let them be, let everybody be as strong as they possibly can be. Right. I mean, isn't that our job here to like be super kind to everybody and to appreciate people. And then when they're feeling sad, like be nice to them. And I think we are really suffering. I do like a crisis of appreciation for people. And when you appreciate people, you it's so wonderful because you're always impressed. Like everything everybody does is you like have a wonderful day every day because you're like, wow, I can't believe, you know, how nice you look, or I can't believe you made that great loaf of bread or, oh my God, you wrote that. That's so cool. As opposed to walking around like, well, you know what? He only was able to do that because, you know, he had this advantage and it's like, stop it. Just stop. Right. So I would say we can start there as opposed to creating um, new initiatives. I, I also really, really don't think boys want to be coddled. I really don't. I think they're going to, yeah, and I think that they I think they're going to have an allergy to that. I, and I got to tell you, I don't really want to coddle. I mean, your little babies. Oh, and I want to say congratulations to my friend, Liz Wolf. We just had a baby boy uh, three days ago, Zev Carmine Harthill. Congratulations, Liz. We love you. He's beautiful. And yeah, a beautiful welcome name. to the crisis of masculinity. Yeah. <laughs> Good luck graduating college. We're only going to be building him up. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't really believe in 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 like coddling anybody. Being kind, yes, but you know, let let people no, let people run as, I, they, as fast I, well, as they can. I do think more male role models is helping. I do think that that the fact that seventy five percent of the teachers are female is not irrelevant, it and will, and it's like three percent in kindergarten. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's interesting when Tava was, uh, when we moved to Portland, there was, um, kind of a daycare nearby 
not like for little tiny babies or anything, but toddlers. And most of the people there were like teenage boys. They were oh, helping really? Out. Yeah, which was really, because some of them were Tava's friends. And I was like, that's oh. really cool. They're like, yeah, we like it. That's you know? really unusual. I think more boys yeah. would do that. You know, so I, I, I taught daycare through college. And uh, that was a really great job that I did in the afternoons. I went to school in the mornings. And uh, there was only one male teacher there. And I remember like one of the things I got to do was because uh, I had little four-year-olds, I would lie down next to them when they were in nap time and kind of help them go to sleep. You know, I'd put a hand on their back or whatever. And oftentimes I fell asleep because I was hungover. And um, <laughs> I remember I, t- I told him about this once. He was obviously in a different classroom and he was like, oh my God, I would never do that. I Why, would never do that. I would get reported. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It would be yeah, screaming. You know, he was yeah, like, I yeah. never am with yeah. a kid. Like he was nervous even going into the bathroom with girls when they have, you, sometimes you have to take them to like go to the potty or whatever. Anyway. Yeah. yeah like the, the stigma and the fear around men working in younger ages. Woo. That's another tough one. Anyway. Um, one of the other things I wanted to mention was, uh, this idea of men not having friends that I think is something that is not necessarily. I mean, what was that book a million years ago? Bowling Alone, talking well, about that, you know? Bowling Alone is a book about the collapse of social networks, not uh, Facebook. I mean, like community no. networks, right? Oh, yeah, you used to have the used to have the Elks Club and the BPOE, yeah. and you used to have church, and you used to have like it was you know you lived in your community. We definitely are now honeycombed away with our phones. And um, honeycombed away. I like it's, that. it's, I got that from a writer a billion years ago, LA Weekly writer. Um, but, um, but it's getting work. Can I just say something? Yeah, so in yeah, yeah. 2019, 15% of men say they have no close friends. And that's, da- up, that's up from 3% in 1990. My dad had like one close friend. Yeah, as an adult. And then when he moved away, he and his wife moved away. He didn't, he did like, he would have people that came into their lives that she would bring into their lives, but he really didn't. And I got to tell you, he watched my, I hate to say this because my dad was a successful, he was a stockbroker. He did well, totally self-made guy came from nothing, but he, he would, he could sit in front of that TV seven hours a day. (laughs) Um, he also read books. He read a lot of books. So, uh, what was the thing I was going to say? Um, Oh, that one of the the points this book makes is that, you know, we used to, you know, we came from a society where women were financially dependent and men were emotionally dependent on their wives, both for caring for the children and also for their like social networks. And what we've done is to like do half of that so that women are no longer dependent necessarily on men financially but men are still dependent and tend to be dependent on women for social networks, so, well, social closeness. That's, that's how we are, right? Men are out, you know, killing the bear and women are hanging around making the food or something. That's how we were socialized. I did want to go back. I forgot to mention one thing when you're talking about, you know, women, they, they had the traditional roles, then they added this other stuff and now they're so stressed. I, the thing is that a lot of women also decide that they need to, and I'm sure some men do this too, they need to micromanage everything and it has to be like this and we're going to have a proper dinner on the table every night and we're going to do this and everything's going to be folded. And then they they drive themselves and their families crazy because in fact, you don't need to do that. You can make a quesadilla in the microwave if you want. And I remember when Tava was about, my daughter was about 15 or 16, I was at the top of the stairs fuming about something and she and Din, my husband, stood at the bottom of the stairs and said, could you stop could you stop? 
Yeah. Just meaning stop micromanaging our fucking lives. And it was literally like the light bulb went off. I was like, oh, I, I don't have to do this. And I did stop. And it was much, much better. It was much, much better. So ladies, you can do it too. <laughs> um, I, I want to give you time. Is there anything else in this book? Is it called Men Without Work? Men Without Work. Uh, I have to say it's a, it's a very, I, I only got through about two thirds of it because I had to give it back to Matt who interviewed. Okay. So he came to the studio the other day to Paloma in my apartment, Paloma, because Matt was interviewing him for the fifth column. That's the probably going to drop. The author of this yeah, book. Yeah. And, he, and I said, Matt, leave me this book, leave me this book. And it was, he's an interesting guy, D, uh, Nicholas Eberstadt, his grandfather was Ogden Nash. His like oh, wow. other grandfather started this in the, I don't know if the OSS or the CIA. His sister was a Warhol girl. He's a very interesting, very, very nice guy. And his book is just super fast and easy to read. I don't mean because it's simple, just because of the way he organizes the material. I found it absolutely fascinating and, and pretty devastating. So no, I, I don't. What I got from the book was just that men are receding for a variety of reasons, but part of it is because they are either getting the message actively or passively that they're not necessary. And they're like, okay. So. I was reminded that one more of the eye-popping statistics in this book uh, in terms of like pandemic effect on the genders was that during the pandemic, the decline in college enrollment was seven times greater for um, for men than women. The decline. That that's right. And then when, you know, when exactly like what you were saying before, as certain numbers come back, those don't. They just don't. Like, it's like, okay, we're going to snap back now. No, but no, more men just get, and, and there are a lot of charts in this book. It's just, it's not good. And let's, let's just for a moment, I, I don't want to speculate here, but if this is the direction that we're going and, and it's not going this way in other countries, it's America where there's like a vast amount of wealth, right? What, what, what are the ramifications of this? Like if this chart keeps going up, if we're at one in seven now, and then, you know, for whatever reasons, it's, it's, it's one in six, it's one in five. What are we doing here to the fabric? Now, I, I'm, I'm not trying to be snotty here, but I'm sure that there are, will be some people that are like, fine, we don't need them. Well, we do. Actually, you need, you need grownups to be productive members and you need people to feel valued, whoever they are. They need to feel valued and as though they have purpose because they do have purpose. So I, I, I don't know. He, this trend did not look, according to the book, does not look like it's reversing. And uh, it's kind of frightening. I just want to say <clears throat> that America-centric uh, uh, statistic may be true f uh, for work, but it is not true for boys in school. They are falling behind girls across all the Western democracies. So that is that is uh, very you know and 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 interestingly, I mean a couple of 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 countries have are trying to do something about this. I mean Australia and Sweden are both devising programs to to address boys left behind and and Finland um, is, is uh, you know which is always fabled for its education system that they're having a problem. Scotland uh, has also decided to address this. Um, I wanted to say, oh, and in Iceland, which is known for like having the most gender parity of any country, 77% mm. of college is women. 77% of 
women in colleges? I, I, I don't, I really don't know where this is going. I mean, as you know, we, we, we joke that the sort of subhead of this, this podcast is I love men and I do, and I love women too, but I just, I just feel like they, they, they shouldn't recede. I don't want them. We to. love men. We need men. Yes. We want men yes. to, to just like everybody. I mean, look, I think everybody's having trouble finding purpose and meaning. This is like an existentially difficult time. True. True. Um, you get, a, get up in the morning. You want to create something good for your, um, for your peoples and your listeners and for wherever you live. So start small, like, you know, take care of those boys and girls. Um, in your world. So we had a couple of other things to talk about. One was a uh, one was uh, 48-year-old women having babies. Yeah. <laughs> 40-somethings <laughs> having babies and you can too. I was just like whenever I see a star I, and it's always of course the woman, you don't hear about the guy like it's a woman and she's 48 and she's pregnant. I'm like, what did you say to me yesterday? Those ain't her eggs. <laughs> I mean, okay. So so Sorry. okay, first is the announcement <laughs> that Hillary Swank is pregnant at 48. With we twins. congratulate her. We're happy for Hillary Swank. This is really great. This is somebody who had not been a mother yet. She had wanted to be a mother. She has talked about her infertility struggles over the years. She is pregnant at 48. Yay. Um, she also has a new show uh, coming out that I'm interested in called Alaska Daily, which is premiering, I think, tonight, which will be yesterday when this comes out, which is written by Tom McCarthy, uh, who wrote uh, Spotlight. It's about journal a journalist. I love Spotlight. Oh, my yeah. God. I was like so overcome. Of course, I was overcome in that movie. Yeah, right. You were just like crying the whole time. I was like, why are you crying again? This is so good. Anyway, go ahead. So anyway, I just wanted to mention that because I am curious about that show, which is is coming out. But pregnant at 48. Okay, wonderful. But then I went to Jezebel and I saw this subhead. At a time when women are being told to freeze our eggs by age 30, Halle Berry, Cameron Diaz, and more remind us that pregnancy can happen on our own timelines. That would be false. No, it cannot. (laughs) No, it cannot. (laughs) If you would like to empower women to lead their best lives, I suggest strongly that you change this message. This message is warping, warping. Because let me tell you something, it is really difficult to get pregnant at that age. And uh, one is not impossible. I mean, that. so I mean, you know, when I first got into this, this whole thing, like my book came out when I was 40. And then like, when I was 41, I was like, you know, I wonder if it's time to freeze my eggs because I finally had money and time. And it's like 41 is not when you want to freeze your eggs because you are already in this decline. You know, your eggs start declining at 35, really at 32. And this is one of these places where nature doesn't play fair. Okay. It sucks. It's not fair. But you should know about this. To not know about this is to be robbed of your agency. And one of the things that I thought, I mean, very stupidly, but it turns out to be very commonly at this point was I was like, but I've been seeing all these, all these celebrities have, you know, 
pregnancies in like their late 40s. I just thought, well, like things were different now because I really wasn't paying attention. The last years of my of my 30s, I was focused on a book. I was focused on getting sober. I was focused on all sorts of other things. And in the back of my head, I was just like, you know what? It's going to be fine because pregnancy can happen on my own timeline. No, it can't. Now, here's the thing. IVF, uh, intro, in, in, what is it? Intro, in, inner vitro in, fertilization. In, in vitro inner, in fertilization. In vitro fertilization. I was putting some extra letters in there. Um, assisted reproductive technologies. All these things are forging ahead. It is amazing. It is. However, However. they are not nearly as foolproof as, as people make them out to be. People go through multiple uh, cycles of IVF. I mean, I think now we know this because there has been like a lot of a lot of stories about people that are trying to do IVF and they're failing and stuff like that. It is enormously expensive. I don't understand oh. how people can dare, like if you are at all interested in income inequality or wage gap or anything like that, you can toss off things like people can get pregnancy, pregnant on their own timeline and not a, a, a acknowledge that these things can cost between fifty thousand, a hundred thousand, and more dollars. I don't have that kind of money. I have friends that have spent, you know, tens of thousands of dollars on on in vitro, and starting when they were like she was like thirty two, and she finally did wind up having two kids. But her husband's also a doctor, and they had like you know they were very in the know about what to do. But it was unbelievably expensive and labor intensive, and like something like thirty two tries. I mean, it's not. It's not easy, but you're absolutely right in terms of like, you can do it on your own time. Here's the one thing that doesn't change. Yes, we've made incredible advances in, in, in people being able to get pregnant when then they never would have uh, previously because we didn't have the advancements. Your body biology doesn't change. It doesn't change. Your eggs, you're born with a certain amount of eggs. They start to degrade at, like you said, at 32 or 35. So they're not going to be as easily uh, impregnable or whatever, uh, um, what, what would, what's the word, fertilized, um, or they're just going to have problems. They're not going to be like fresh and, and great things to make a child out of. And you are not going, you are, I don't care how advanced you've become, how many advanced degrees you have, how famous you are, how rich you are. Your body doesn't care about any of that. Your body has its mechanisms to make what it makes. And you're absolutely right. It is pretty, I mean, it's Jezebel. I'm not expecting, you know, a Nobel Prize over there from Jezebel, but it is irresponsible. No, it's even irresponsible. If, I, I really do believe it is. Even if people be like, well, you're going to believe Jezebel. Well, no, but this stuff is like in the flotsam. It's like floating around that you have this idea that you can be 50 and have a child. Well, you really can't be. Or um, like, you know, it's, it's interesting that they used Cameron Diaz here in the subhead because Cameron Diaz was pretty open about having a surrogate. So did she did she like have a surrogate's eggs implanted in her? Because you can do that, right? You can get or did she use a surrogate? She used a, a I mean, I, I don't actually know if they were okay. her eggs or that, you know, because a lot of these celebrities probably did have um, access to freezing their eggs at an earlier time. They would have been, you know more wealthy, you know, more connected, you know, egg freezing is now becoming something that is oh, I ran into more common. Someone whose name I won't mention, but she's 25 at a party recently. And she's like, oh yeah. I was like, oh, why or don't you live in, you know, so-and-so? And she's like, yeah, but I was here because I had my eggs frozen. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, I, and I, a friend of my daughter's just did the same thing. It's just like, you know what? I don't know what's happening. I'm not with a partner right now. I think I'm going to want kids. I'm just going to do it. It's like, you know, it just becomes another one of these things that you do. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. one um, of the things um, in researching this, I was looking at the different uh, celebrities that had babies at, at older ages. Did you remember that Janet Jackson had a baby at 51? I did not. And and according to Tito Jackson, who is my source for all things, yeah, Tito, she did not use a surrogate or somebody else's eggs, which I just I have to call bullshit on. No, I don't know. I got to tell you, it not maybe the every, Jackson family is just a different strain. They're, they're special. Maybe no, they um, are. I remember. Do you remember reading? Um, when I was a kid, there was the uh, the Guinness Book of World Records, you know, and it was like person with the longest fingernails. Person I was obsessed with, like, with that. I loved it. We all did. We were so, you know, we were so we're, starved for data. I, I would that, and 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 then there was also so there was the Guinness Book feminist. of World Records, and also the um the Ripley's Believe It or Not. Loved you remember it. The, oh my god, so did I. I was obsessed with it. We had oh, a board game. Oh my god. So anyway, anyway, remember in um. I remember in that, I remember, and you're going to remember too, there was a picture of the oldest mother and her daughter. And I believe she was 56 years old when she had her daughter. Yeah. And she looked like yeah. an old farm wife and the girl had like little bronze braids and I guess was born in, I don't know, some early 60s or something like that. It happens. Or, yeah, it can it happen. But anyway. And, and, yes, and when so. it happens, I think it tends to confound <clears throat> people that uh or or give false hope to people that are in the giant bell curve of people that are just not it's just going to be a lot harder to try to conceive in your 40s just a lot a lot a lot more expensive more and also you know by the way in the comment section there's a lot of people that are older mothers that are saying like um yeah also this is a lot harder like you might want to point out that like physically it's a lot harder and the child like like your pregnancies are more um like have have run more risk like for preeclampsia and gestational diabetes and things like that there's a reason why is a reason why, sorry, I know this sounds terrible. People are like, shut the fuck up, Nancy. But there's kind of a reason why you, when you have kids when you're young, at least I was fairly young, uh, not really, I wasn't 14, but, um, you know, you, you are, you still have a lot of energy, but the, also the big thing, at least in my idea was that I didn't have my whole life set. Right. It was like I could kind of grow with the kid. Like it wasn't I had to fit her into our, you know, very important life. I remember I remember having friends. My daughter was already like five or six. I was in my it's like 31. And I had friends and I would they were in New York and I was like, our I don't know if they were talking about having kids. And like, well, we're not gonna do it yet because we just want to be more financially set. They were each making about a half million dollars a year. And I'm like, yeah, no, that's not that's not how that works. Anyway, they didn't wind up getting married. They married other people. So um, um, we have other things. Yes, we do. Um, what about? Are we going to talk about a professor? We can do that quickly. Everybody uh, was talking about that story this week. Yeah, and I will say, even my daughter, who isn't really pay attention to these stories so much, but I, I thought it set, sets a really bad precedent. Uh, there's a professor named Maitland Jones. He was a professor of organic chemistry at NYU. He'd been there a while, and his contract was not renewed because last year, some students circulating a a petition saying the class was too hard. The class was too hard, and they didn't feel they wrote that they were not given grades that would allow them to get into medical school. Okay, so this is organic chemistry, which is a class that you need to take, apparently, in order to get into medical school. And it's notoriously hard. It's very hard. Now, this professor, he's not a slouch, though he is older. He's 85. He wrote like a 1,300-page ur textbook about 
organic chemistry. So clearly he's been around a while and kind of knows what he's doing. It was the pandemic. People realized, well, you know, we have to, people are struggling. So they created a bunch of other things in order to help the students. They created online tutorials and they created videos and they had extra help. And what happened was that the kids didn't go to class when class came back into session. They didn't they didn't do the online tutorials. They didn't watch the videos. They completely apparently couldn't even read the tests. Like they were getting zeros mm. on the test. Like they didn't even know how to but instead of like saying, "Well, you know, I'm be a doctor and this is a class that I probably need because I need to understand things on molecular levels when I get you know, deep into my doctoring. No, they said, well, no, we, we find him to be, you know, we, we don't like his style and we don't feel that this is fair and we want to be able to drop out retroactively. And they wrote the, and we basically, they started a campaign and the school let him go. And it's important to point out that the students actually didn't ask for him to be fired. Okay. I don't, I don't, you know. rem- well, yeah, they didn't call for that. So, they didn't but- call for his firing. The school okay. decided okay. to fire him. And, you know, he is 85. He didn't renew his, they just didn't, he was, he was, I think he was teaching on a year to year contract. Yeah, he's right like now. got a like adjunct position or something like that, you so, know? So he's not, he's not like a tenured professor anymore because he had retired. My issue um, with this is it's just a bad precedent. Yeah. I think. I mean, you, you guys, you got to do the work. And I'm sorry, I'm really, really, I'm completely sick of seeing people who have very little skin in the game, whether it's, you know, they work at a coffee shop or they're taking a particular class or they've now just started working for a company whose ethics they think don't match up with their ideas, starting these drumbeat petitions to smear people or get them ousted. It's like, you know, get a few more, get a little more cred under your belt, maybe go to class. I don't know, maybe maybe use the online tutorial that you were offered to do better. And then if you want to complain, well, okay, I get it. But to just not do the work and say, I just want, I, we, we don't feel this is fair. I, I, I feel it's incredibly juvenile. And for NYU to cave, I mean, he had a lot of people, I'll, we'll link the New York Times article. He had a lot of teachers and students coming to his defense and saying, no, 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 this is not, this is not right. This is wrong. And they let him go anyway. I think it's a terrible precedent. Well, and it it, it is um, in the sense that it also speaks to this like consumer client model at universities, you know, where basically the students, you want to keep the students happy, which is an upending of how we've traditionally seen colleges, right. colleges um, purpose and role. But, you know, that is hard. That is. That is understandable given the amount of money that those kids are spending to go to that school. That was in the piece. They said, well, we want to, you know, not only keep the student, but we want to, we want to keep the people that allow them to be here happy or something like that. Like meaning the parents that are paying for it. It's like, really? That's that, that's what it's about. It's about keeping people happy or not, not making people feel uh, overwhelmed. I'm sorry, you want to be a doctor. I would really appreciate it if you learned, if you took the classes that are required to be a doctor. I mean, <laughs> wouldn't you? So 
one of the interesting takes that I saw on this doesn't disagree with any of the things you've said, but does it's a it's by Eric Levitz at New York Magazine, and he points out that organic chemistry is a weed out course because we thought that we had too many doctors. There was a uh, you know like studies in in the eighties that said we needed a way to reduce these numbers, but in fact there's an argument that we need more doctors and that the U.S. has fewer practicing physicians per capita than any other developed country, um, which was an interesting take. I mean, his his argument is uh, a little bit like he's not even sure we need organic chemistry okay. to be okay. this tough. So I thought that was okay. interesting. That's interesting. All right. What else? Was there anything else, lady? No. Okay. What's in so, your hot box? What is in my hot box? Well, uh it's kind of like not brand new in my well I did watch the the season finale of, of uh, reservation dogs which I highly recommend of course I, we've talked about that show that my daughter worked on ad nauseum so I'll we'll just put a link to the uh to the finale which was beautiful but I am going to give a little plug for um so you you can't see but there's a there's a folded out bed behind me in the studio here and uh, my friend Ken Lane l a y n e um, is staying here because he does a radio show and also puts out a publication called um, Desert Oracle. Ken has one of the greatest radio voices you've ever heard. I mean, it's the voice of the desert. I can't do it, but it's very deep. He is profoundly funny, but in this very kind of wry, dry way, the show is wonderful. It's, we'll put a link to it. It's, it's, he calls it a radio show. You might call it a podcast, but in any case, he is performing tonight here in New York city doing a live show. And then he's going to have a live West coast tour, uh, starting, I think in about a week and a half. So that's, that's in my hot box. And he's currently in my, um, currently at my dining room table, writing his script for tonight. So that's, uh, that's my offering this week. Okay. Uh huh. What about you lady? Well, I watched Coal Miner's Daughter last night. Oh, Sarah. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, so. because Loretta Lynn, at the age of 90, passed away. Yeah. And so I decided I wanted to see that movie. I It came out in 1980, and I saw it when I was six years old, and I still remember it. Sissy Spacek. Right? Sissy Spacek. And do you remember who plays her husband in the movie? I do. Uh, 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 um, no. Tommy Lee Jones. I was just going to say that. I couldn't think of his oh, name. Oh, you should have said it. I was, oh. I, was, I was like, what's his name? Jones, Jones, Jones. I, I did remember that. Tommy Lee Jones and he's things. great. Yeah. She's married to a kind of hard drinking, sometimes cheating, difficult man named Mooney. And they call him Dew as well. Uh, you know, he's also abusive. This is one of those. This is one of those movies that if it were being done today, <laughs> it would be. I, it would be a different movie. I, I don't. I don't. I'm not quite sure wow. how you would tell this story because he is abusive and she stays with him. And you know their first night together. It basically, by modern standards, you would call this a rape because she doesn't know about sex, and he kind of forces it on her. And then she's really mad the next day. And, and, you know, this is somebody that this is a couple that stays together and becomes sort of like a mythological couple in the in the country music landscape, because, of course, he's the one that kind of introduces her to playing guitar, 
playing music. He supports her tremendously. Is he a um, musician too? No, he's not. Okay. He's okay. um he's kind of this um he's just like a character, you know? Like he yeah. used to right. he's briefly in Moonshine, that's why they call him Mooney. Then he's like in logging. Um, but he really puts a lot of muscle behind her career. You know, he starts like he has faith in her before she has faith in herself and becomes the bridge toward what becomes like one of the big careers in country music. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's an interesting movie to watch by modern standards. Um, but it's also great. Sissy Spacek is fantastic. Uh, oh, the other thing that's interesting is that they, for the movie, they made it seem like she was getting married at 13. Later, it came out that she was actually married around like 15 or 16. Not that that's so much better, but it's interesting that the number got lowered back then when mm. you would definitely do it the you other way it, now. Make it higher. I read on someone's Instagram story, they had a whole bunch of little clips of, um, of uh, Loretta Lynn and they typed in the bottom, she used to jump off the stage and tackle women that flirted with her husband. <laughs> Well, you know, I don't know if that's true specifically, but she certainly had a reputation for for not being any kind of a wilting, you know, flower about about pushing back against women that did flirt with Dew. And of course, wrote a couple songs about it, um, including the uh, non subtly titled Fist City. Fist City. Oh, well, I think we got our outro song. There you go. Um, Yeah. So it was really fun. And I remembered it. You know what I remembered best about that movie for some reason was Patsy Cline. Um, Beverly D'Angelo plays Patsy Cline. She was great, Beverly D'Angelo. She always did cool stuff. She's great in this movie. She's such, I think she made such a big impression on me because Patsy Cline was such a sort of like, Beautiful, glam- you know, she's very glamorous and successful. And then she dies suddenly. I and I think to my little six-year-old brain, it was just like, wait a minute, they're going to take away my favorite character? Like, yeah, that's and not I don't, possible. I don't even know if this is true, but I think it might have to do with when that's around the time I start getting nervous about flying. Um, huh. Because I was six years old when I saw it. And I definitely remembered that she had died in a plane crash. And that's yeah. around the time yeah. I started to get really nervous about that. But yeah, uh, I, that's what I remembered. Patsy Cline was uh, instrumental in helping Loretta Lynn... Um, in her career, they became good friends. When Patsy died, Loretta Lynn kind of rose up to become her successor as the the sort of number one female name in country music. Well, um, well, I think that's that's it for us today. Yeah, um, not too scattered. You did think. okay. I did, did okay. okay. I didn't cry. Um, well. Thanks, everybody, for joining us again. Uh, we'll uh, be getting some more stuff in our hot box before we see you. Sarah is going to make a hairdresser's appointment. <laughs> and um, we'll uh, we'll let you know when we're going to do our uh, our little video hang. Please tell your friends. Uh, please subscribe if you haven't already and you're hearing our dulcet tones. It's easy to do over on the Substack. And Sarah Hefla, I hope you have a lovely day. I hope you do too. Smoke them. Loretta Lynn. Puts it in a garbage.